your Bible and look at uh, Psalm 73. That's our focus this morning, a helpful old friend. I, uh, I, I'm sorry that uh, I missed emailing uh, Jen the handout, so you won't have any much of a help up here for where the blanks are and all that because uh, uh, of my miss. When I wrote this, I've I must have been very distracted. I'm so methodical, faces I brush my teeth at the same minute of every day and everything else. I'm just kind of routine that way. And uh, I, the only thing I can think of is because of this, the, the distraction, I failed to do that. So you'll survive. You'll, uh, that's the good news, I hope. And uh, you have a yellow sheet in front of you, and I'll try and emphasize the word uh, if you're looking for the blank to fill that in. But I call Psalm 73 a, a helpful old friend. It is. You know, I don't know how you view your Bible, but uh, uh, the longer I live and serve the Lord and read the Word and love the Word and come to know the Word, uh, you know, people like uh, uh, Paul and Peter and David and uh, uh, so many others, uh, Matthew, Mark, John, the, I feel like they're my friends. And as I open the Word, the Spirit of God teaches me, and it's like uh, if I'm in John, John's uh, uh, talking to me and giving me the wise counsel of God uh, as a friend, as a friend. And uh, Psalm 73 uh, is no exception. The Psalms, I love the book of Psalms, and Psalm 73 is a, is a wisdom psalm. It helps us. It's helped the, the redeemed of the Lord for centuries of time as we live life in a world that is filled with great disappointment. Great disappointment. I look out over just a number of you. I know that a number of you have had disappointment, if not today, this week. It didn't turn out like you thought. Isn't that something? I hear the words of my mother. Boy, life turned out so different than I thought it would. And boy, you know, we could all echo that. Because we live in a fallen world. It's a it's a Humpty Dumpty world. And the earnest counsel of Psalm 73 helps us to think rightly, lest we get swept away in our thoughts in wrong thinking and respond uh, in a way that is not God-honoring. And so friendships, I remind you on your sheet, are some of God's uh, sweet gifts to us. They are, aren't they? There's nothing better than old friends. Make new friends, and, but keep the olds. The new ones are like silver, the old ones like gold. That's why we have that little jingle, because it's true. Don't we love that, uh, friends? Well, the Bible tells us that the sweetness uh, uh, of a friend is from his earnest counsel. A lot of people don't care about you at all. Did you know that? You know that. Most people don't care. They may be somewhat interested of this or that, but not really. It's a passing interest. But it's an, an earnest friend, it's a dear friend, it's an old friend that will tell you something in, in, in earnest advice and counsel to you and to me that others wouldn't care. They wouldn't care, right? If you had some egg on your face and you went off to work or school, people look at it and they won't say anything to you. They go, look at that guy, right? It's a friend that says... You know, I think you need a hanky or Kleenex there to clean up there or something between your teeth, right? People look at it all day long. Hey, there's, I wonder what he had. It looks like, right? They won't tell you. It takes a dear friend to step close and say, because they feel that and they want to. And not only those peripheral 
minor issues of life, but the deep, weighty things of life. It's a friend. It's the counsel, the sweetness of a friend's count. Their love, their care, their advice uh, that they carry for you. Well, that's really Psalm 73. You can check Proverbs 27, 9, because that's where the, uh, Solomon says the, the sweetness of a friend comes from their earnest counsel. Well, if you belong to the Lord, his wonderful word should be like a friend to you. It should. It's God's wisdom. It's God's counsel for you and to me to help us along to live life in this fallen world, this sin-filled, death-ending world of ours. It is uh, helped to uh, uh, it helps us along uh, this world that is filled with suffering. And it is. Have you noticed? You'll look at the headlines of the paper and work your way through it. Same things, different faces, different names. Day after day after day. Suffering, pain. There's pain in this world and there's loss. That little poem, My Bible and I Through Life. Isn't that beautiful? And We've used that before. Well, Psalm 73 is certainly a much-beloved psalm uh, as its wisdom has helped the redeemed of the Lord uh, to have a right perspective on life. For life in our fallen world seems upside down. It's a minor key in a musical uh, paradigm or way of thinking about it. It's a Humpty Dumpty world in the nursery rhyme. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's our world. There are pieces everywhere. And you and I trying to make rhyme or reason or sense of it. Uh, at times it's most difficult. It is. And that's the theme that uh, Asaph, Asaph was a choir director. He wrote the next uh, ten psalms here. Uh, he was David's uh, uh, Levitical choir director. Uh, 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 director and wrote this beautiful psalm that he is so transparent. I love it indeed. Uh, I, uh, there, this theme is dealt with in a couple other places. <clears throat> Just by one last thought by way of introduction, as we read Psalm 37 deals with the same theme. Why do the wicked uh, seem to prosper and God's people don't. Fret not thyself, we read, of evildoers. Don't worry about them. Don't be troubled by that. Uh, and in Psalm 37, the answer that we're given there is trust God and wait upon him. When it seems really humpty-dumpty and upside down, trust God and wait on him. Wait, wait. Oh, we hate waiting, don't we, Americans? The guy drove through the drive through at the fast food and had to wait a little longer because they goofed up his order and he pulled out a revolver and started shooting. Well, we don't do that, but sometimes we get like this and we have to wait, wait. Oh, it's the bane to most Americans. Wait, I can't wait, wait. Greg was telling us what they had to do in the, in the emergency room when they took Taylor in. And take a number, wait, take a number, wait. You got to bring the baby, got to fill out the wait, wait, wait. Some of you go to the emergency room and you wait. Joe, did you have to wait very long? Seven hours. After they looked at you, they waited, made you wait seven hours. Wow. Wait, and that's some, it's even longer. Yeah. 
we've taken the kids. I've kidded Greg about this and David. I said, when you go in, you just yell louder, fall on the floor, do something. You know, and they'll get you waiting, waiting. It's very difficult. It's very, a lot of pressure on the ERs and, you know, all that kind of thing. Most of waiting, waiting for food, waiting for emergency, waiting. Oh, we're not good at that. That's something. Another portion of the word that teaches this whole theme is the book of Job, right? Look at Job, righteous Job loses everything. What's the answer given in Job? Heaven is silent. Now, we know because we read it these centuries later, but God doesn't even answer. what Job was clueless as to what God was up to. Well, our psalm today calls us to move to a different perspective. Jim Boyce, in writing about this psalm, calls it Asaph's paradigm shift. Now, paradigm is one of these buzzwords in the last uh, little bit where, in fact, uh, uh, that we like to talk about a radical change in, in perspective or the way we view things. And Jim Boyce is right, insofar as Asaph, right in the middle of this, has a paradigm shift of the radical degree. And it might be something that you need even this morning. Well, two perspectives then in viewing life in our fallen world. Hear the wise counsel of this psalm and see the fullness of life as it really is. Don't be fooled. Well, the first perspective Asaph uh, gives us is found in verses uh, 1 to 14 of the psalm. If you look at that, and it is simply this, it, it is true. It is true that often the wicked seem to have what we say is the good life, while we as God's people don't. It is true. When you look out through the lens of life and just in the community, uh, sort of sense the ebb and flow of, of, of your neighborhood and friends and at school, and boy, it seems to go well with those that don't name the name of Christ. Woe unto me, all the troubles that I've seen. Why is it so? Well, that is uh, verses 1 to 14, and Asaph's problem really is, how can this be if our God is a God of justice? How can it be? How can it be? Well, he begins in verse 1 with a biblical truth. Surely, he says, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. Now, it's like he's laying down a plank of theology here. It's like he's uh, uh, resuscitating uh, orthodoxy. Surely God is good to Israel, to them that are pure of heart. It's like saying, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's maybe from his catechism class at the synagogue. He, he learned this as a, as a biblical platitude, and it's true. It's true. It's biblically true. It's true. God is good, and God is good always. And he cites that in verse 1. But then he moves into verse 2, and he begins to tell us of his difficulty with it. But as for me, he says, this is Asaph, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, Asaph confessed that, as far as he could see, it wasn't true to life. It wasn't true to the day-to-day world in which he lived in. Uh, Rather, to him, it seemed just the opposite. 
God's moral universe. Asaph, if you were to take the roving mic over him, ask him, what would you expect of this world that God has made? He would say, well, I would expect God to always bless the circumstances of the righteous, to bless the righteous always, and to always punish the wicked. After all, this is a moral universe. We live in a world that no longer believes that, but that doesn't nullify the reality that this is God's world and it's a moral universe. There are rights and wrong that are always right or wrong. It's not a subjective issue. The more I read about it, the inundation of our culture that everyone determines what's right or wrong for himself. That's absolute nonsense. That throws us back into the book of Judges again, where every man does what is right in his own eyes. And it ends in destruction, loss, and death. And that's where we're headed as a culture without the revival and the moving of the Spirit of God. It's, uh, it's throwing it to the, to the wind. And we as a people reap the whirlwind. It's always right, and it's always wrong, as God determines in his word, as he has stated in platitude in verse 1. But Asaph said, look, I, I had a problem here. And see, his problem deepened because he found himself not only observing it, but he actually, as a redeemed, was now envying, wishing that he was the wicked who seemed to be enjoying the prosperity of the good times. He said he resented, number one, resented the fact that God allowed the situation to continue. God, you're there. You really are. Why don't you zap the wicked? Why do you prosper their stock portfolio, their cattle, their livestock, their health, their life? Why don't you just eliminate them and bless the godly, the remnant, the few? That was his problem. He resented the fact that God allowed it to continue. And number two, he resented that God was treating him in a way he thought, uh, God was not treating him in a way he thought he should be treated. I deserve more. Did you ever say that? Did you ever think that? I deserve better than this. That's what Asaph is thinking as he looks out on the world of his day. I don't deserve this. I deserve better. I'm a child of God. I'm redeemed. Why am I having woe unto me all these troubles and problems on every side? I deserve better. Well, envy, I'm reminded, is really a heart sin that criticizes God. It is sin. It is sin. And he was stuck right there. He was doubting the very truth of verse 1, that God is surely good to Israel, to them that are of pure heart. Well, look at D. Asaph then, in verses 4 to 12, uh, looks upon the godless, and he's going to describe their apparent prosperity as he simply looks around the community in which he lived. And you can, and I can do the same thing as we look around our classrooms, our workplaces, our families. And we all have a story, and we can all see the, the names change, but the circumstances are quite similar to our day. Look at this as he describes it in verses 4 and 5. He said, they uh, appear to have no struggles. No, it's not true, but it appears that they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. The wicked do not seem to suffer trouble. Verses 4 and 5, that's small number 1 there. It seems so. 
Number two, the godless are very proud, engaging in violence to further themselves. If that weren't enough, look at six, he says, uh, therefore pride is their necklace. It's like they wear it about, they strut about like the old NBC peacock really taken up and proud of themselves and their names and their accomplishments in all of uh, their life. Uh, he said they strut about with it. They clothe themselves with violence. Almost sounds like the Cosa Nostra. You know, you can think of that. Their arrogance and their pride and, and if uh, you don't do what we want, we'll rub you out and we'll send a hitman, Johnny, to blow you away. And I sort of, I don't know why, maybe it's the untouchable, it, 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 it springs up in my mind just that very thought uh, of that, that they're, they're filled with pride and, and violence. And, and, and they seem to, to forcefully get everything they, they want. Now, there's a biblical example of this, and let me show you one. There are n- numerous, numerous examples, but look at, hold, keep your place in Psalm 73, but look at, go back to 1 Kings 21. Just let's use a biblical illustration here to show you uh, 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 just a brief uh, vignette of a story here of uh, Naboth and his vineyard and uh, evil Ahab the king. We're talking about uh, Samaria here and Jezebel the queen. You've heard of Queen Jezebel. Uh, well, the, in, in, in 1 Kings 21, just uh, look at verse 1. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And Ahab said to Naboth, in essence, give me your vineyard. I love that thing. It's close to my house. I want it. I want it. I'm the king. I want it. In essence, that's what he's saying. In fact, I'll exchange it. Give you better, I'll pay you, so on. Look at three. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid. You see, Naboth responded godly. God had given the land to the people, and the land was to remain in the families. It was not to be simply sold to the highest bidder. And that's why Naboth is responding with a godly response. He said, God forbid that I should do that. That would, uh, that would be sin for me. I cannot do that. Uh, that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So this is what he tells the king. Verse 4, so Ahab went home sullen and angry. You can see that. He's stomping off, pouting. He's the king, right? Because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. Here he is laying on his bed. This guy has a problem, right? He's got more problems than needing a garden. He's sulking, refused to eat. Here's his wife, Jezebel, verse 5. She came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered, because I said to Naboth, sell me your vineyard. Or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. And he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Well, there, now here comes Jezebel. She's going to show her wicked colors indeed. Jezebel said, is this how you act as king over Israel? You're the king. You know, in other words, you can do whatever you want. You want that? It doesn't matter. Go take it. Take it by money if you, if you can. Take it by force if you have to. Well, that's exactly what happens. The wicked king, Ahab, uh, takes Naboth's vineyard by force. <clears throat> uh, look at verse 8. She, she's willing to help him. And we won't take but another minute. She wrote letters in Ahab's name 
placed a seal on them, sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. And in those letters she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. She's going to have them set up. She's going to have two false witnesses testify against Naboth, this godly man who wanted to do what was right. And she's going to have them then taken out and, and executed. And that's exactly what happens in verse uh, in verse. 13. Then the two scoundrels came, sat opposite him, brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. Complete fabrication. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. See, Jezebel helped him to get rid of the problem, but he was a part of it. He was complicit. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And as soon as Jezebel, Je- Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He was no longer alive but dead. And when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard. <clears throat> Only problem, God saw the whole thing. You can read the rest of the chapter this week and discover God's word through his prophet uh, to uh, this wicked king and his wicked wife. And uh, you read then how God actually fulfilled his uh, sentence of death upon them, even to the dogs licking up her very blood. It's quite a story, quite amazing. It's a reminder that though the wicked, even by brute force, may take that, and they often do, that doesn't belong to them. There's one in heaven that sees. He's the final adjudicator of all wrongs. Sometimes here, but finally when we stand before him. And, and uh, Ahab illustrates that. Number three, under D, it seems, back to Psalm 73 and verse 7, that uh, it seems to Asaph that their evil activities know no limits. Verse 7, for their callous hearts, uh, from their callous heart comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their mind know no limits. And all you have to do is walk through the pages of the History Channel and see some of the, the, uh, the stories of Auschwitz and Dachau, and you, you, it, it conjures up in the horror and, and the cemetery of your mind and mind the horror of the death camps of, uh, of Nazism, World War II, and you go like, what is the, the depths of wickedness that men can do to other men? And, and certainly Hitler's one of that. And that's what Asaph's saying, that there seems to be no end. I mean, they do the most awfulest thing, and they come up with new ways of doing greater, more horrific, evil activity. And it seemed to be that way to his way of thinking as he viewed life. No limits to it. Verse 8, we see uh, uh, number 4, their words are arrogant, malicious, as if they owned the entire uh, world or earth. They scoff and speak with malice. Wicked in their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. They say, well, if there's a heaven, I'll be there too. I'll see you there. Their tongues take possession of the entire earth. If that were not enough, verse 10, he goes on to describe that the wicked are so arrogant that their arrogance allows them to have great influence with even God's people or other people. We're not sure who that is in verse 10. Therefore, their people, the NIV translated, turn to them and drink of waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? 
Absolutely so. But they act as if God is ignorant of their many sins. They seem to get away with, with evil. You, did you grow up in a family where sometimes something was done to you by a brother or maybe a sister, maybe an older brother, and you, you uh, thought that your father was going to dole out the discipline, but somehow they got away with it? That happened to me a couple of times with my older brother Dale. Uh, my father looked at him, looked at me, and thought, I did it. When in fact, against my petition, Dale did it, Dale did it. And he got away with it. He got away with it. And sometimes we look at it and we think, how can they do evil? Those that name not God, they seem prosperous. There seems no extent to what they're able to do. They have great influence with people, and they seem to get away with it all. Not the end of the, it's not the end of the book, is it? It isn't. The, the books are not, uh, are, are not finally uh, balanced until the very end. But uh, here he is. He's saying, look, they seem to even get away with it. In verse 11, verse 12, and finally, they seem to have the good life, the caveat, the fullness, the life, what, of the rich and the famous. Some of you will watch that old program. They show these castles and these monstrous houses on the waterway and and all around the world, the lives of the rich and the famous. That sort of is what Asaph's saying. It, it seems to be the wicked. Why is it they appear to have such a good life? He says, this is verse 12, what the wicked are like. They're always carefree, or so it seems. They increase in wealth. That's his dilemma. Well, don't stop there. Look at E. Asaph confesses with great Honesty is confusion over life. For he says in 13, Surely, in vain, I, one of the redeemed, I, the choir, Levitical choir, I've kept my heart pure. In vain, he repeats it, have I washed my hands in innocence. What's going on here? Well, he's asking the point, what's the point then of being godly? What's the point in this world of ours that often seems upside down in rhyme or reason the dots often don't connect the wicked seem to prosper wicked seem to get away with it they seem to be carefree they seem to prosper at every venture and we the redeemed the lord don't often we have pain suffering sorrow loss trouble luke said in, in acts through much tribulation you enter into eternal life and he began to say think to himself What's the point in being godly? In vain, I've kept my heart pure. In other words, in sports, he's saying, I wonder if I'm on the wrong team. I wonder that. You ever play in a team and it was an absolute losing team? They drew straws, the two, the best uh, uh, guys, uh, uh, I'll take him and I'll take him. And, you, you know, you kind of pick each other to the... You've divided up the team, and you still get creamed. You're like, I'm on the wrong team. That's sort of what he's, he looks at life and goes like, it doesn't make sense. <clears throat> I think I'm on the wrong side. And he's toying with that very thought. He's losing his spiritual balance. For as for me, I almost slipped. Remember verse 2? God is good to Israel and to them, but as for, he was losing it in his perspective as he just lived life in the fallen world, was skewed. It was absolutely and totally upside down. 
And often I'm reminded our fallen world, in our form, it does seem that evil wins. And perhaps, just perhaps, you are uh, uh, thinking just like Asaph, even at this very moment. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm, work, I'm working in the future on a series on that book. I think it's very relevant for our day, but it's very terribly exegeted and exposited from pulpits, if it is at all mentioned in our day. That really, Solomon is, is writing in there just this. If you try to make rhyme or reason or connect the dots as you look at life in the world that we live, you can't, you can't make sense of it. You can't. You can't. And Solomon tried all the avenues, and it all seemed in vain, upside down, empty. The race is not to the strong, he says. What's that mean? Usually, you know, if you're going to bet, don't bet, but if you're going to bet, you put your money down on the guy who's the strongest, the fastest, right, in life. But what happens? Life happens. And sometimes the guy that's the strongest, the fastest, doesn't win. The hare and the tortoise. Usually the hare wins, right? But sometimes in a fallen world, the uncertainties and the curveballs and the things that happen, sometimes the tortoise wins. It's not a guaranteed. We don't know what's going to come tomorrow. In our own life, in our own heart, uh, with a wonderful grandbaby, you know, we think like, well, that's normal. Everything's going to be great. Isn't that wonderful and all that? And all of a sudden, a curveball. You go, where did that come from? I didn't see it. You know what? I didn't want to see it. Do you want to know what's coming tomorrow? I don't want to know what's coming tomorrow. If it's bad news, none of us would get out of bed. I'm just going to skip tomorrow. The Lord knows what we can handle one day at a time. And oftentimes, it's upside down. You can't connect it. The book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to look at that uh, in, in the months to come. It's, it, 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 is, it is true that often the wicked seem to have a good life while we as God's people don't. Don't let that throw you into spiritual tailspin. And you, we, if we could pass the mic around, we could all say uh, different stories and different things that have happened that were just utterly blown away, that we never saw it coming that we wept over and we grieve over and we still have pain and loss and suffering over. So I didn't think it was going to happen that way. Join the crowd. That's the world we live in. One of the chief things that I will never forget is a good friend of mine, Jerry, Pastor Jerry Walden. I told this story years ago. When we pastored in Indiana, he was a part of our fellowship and Jerry went to seminary with me, and I knew him from that way, and he ended up pastoring in the area, and uh, he had a beautiful wife and three children, and Jerry's uh, wife would, uh, would very often uh, drive their children to school. And one day in the morning, they were driving, and as they made their way to school on that two-lane road in Indiana, there were over-the-rise two high school kids that were making their way to school, and they were drag racing. And then they were in each lane. And when Jerry's dear wife came over the rise, and the three kids and the teens, and they hit head on, Jerry lost his whole family. 
I'll never forget it. What do you say to that? When you, you go to the funeral and there are four hearses outside the church, one for his beautiful wife and his three beautiful children, and he has nothing. I went to his home after that. For weeks after, there was nothing there. You talk about being absolutely and totally staggered. How do you even get your shoes and pants and, and shirt on and do anything the next day and weeks and months? And you go like, Lord, he's a pastor. He's given his life to, to, to helping flock the shepherd, the flock of God, and teach people the way of salvation and to edify and to grow in grace. And, and why would you permit this, Lord? Where are you? Why would he suffer in a world that you're uh, just and, and it's a moral universe and loss? That, to me, was a day I'll never forget and a time I'll never forget. I, when I, whenever I study Psalm 73, I see Jerry's face. Now, I'm here to say that the grace of God carried him, so you should know that. This was, that was 1988 when he lost everything, and uh, God has uh, carried him. It's not like it never happened, and uh, those ones went instantly to heaven, and, uh, but uh, God has carried him and enabled him uh, through these years. Now, I haven't talked to Jerry in a number of years now. The last time I saw him... Uh, God was caring for his absolute broken heart. Jerry might have asked like Asaph, why is it that the wicked seem to prosper? And we don't. Over stupid, nonsensical accidents. That should never have happened. And the loss that resulted from that. Well, Asaph doesn't stop there. He moves to the second perspective in viewing life in our fallen world. In verses 17 to 26, and don't ever stop at the midway point because the whole song here pivots on verse 17. It's all important. He says uh, uh, here in our, in our text, um, for till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? Well, let's stop here. The proper way to view life is to see it from God's perspective. It is the proper way to view life is to see it from God's perspective or from his throne room. For only this provides us with 20-20 vision. Well, living in this fallen world. It gives us the big picture. Sometimes we hear that. I often view life, human life, as a full-length movie film. Let's say it's two hours long, the beginning of Adam to the very end. And your life and mine, of the old-style motion picture with the frames, we're, we're maybe three or four frames fitting into this story called history that God is... Uh, designed and sovereignly orchestrated from beginning to end. And so here we are, we're somewhere along the storyline of uh, humanity, and, and so who are we to say to God at any point, even though terrible things may happen, disappointing, heartbreaking, God, it's not fair, it's not right, this and that. We're only three frames. God has it already worked out. 
He has his purpose to bring glory to himself. Whether we can see it or not, and oftentimes we don't. You know of the 12 uh, disciples, 11 of them were martyred for Christ. They died in some terrible, terrible ways. Wow. Of whom this world was not worthy. Who would have thought they would have met their demise in that way? The Lord did. He has his purposes. And that's a helpful way to see it. See the big picture. The Lord knows the end and the beginning. He has a purpose and a plan. And you could not script it. You couldn't. Sometimes we think linearly on A to B to C option. God is working on a multi, almost an infinite level, if you will, a chessboard. One move moves, other moves, and it's all integral, and it's just incredible, the plan of God. God could tell us uh, his plan, but we would never understand it. I could tell you, but you'd be babbling like a, you know, a babbler. You couldn't grasp it. I have a hard time remembering name, rank, and social security number, and sometimes I have to look at my card to remember the last, let alone what God is up to. And so when we step back and we look through the lens that sees life from God's throne, we end up seeing the big picture. We see life as it really is. C.S. Lewis said, the longer I live, the more I realize that the the present world, the physical world, is uh, the illusion, and the spiritual world is the reality. That's right. That's another way of putting it. He was seeing things from God's throne, and he saw it with its totality in view. Not just the moment, the moment, they're prospering, I'm not, Lord, I'm mad at you, why'd this happen to me, I love you, why do I have this illness, why this to my children, grandchildren, my neighbor, my church, my all that, who are we to say that? Who are we to say anything to God? Romans said, God is the potter and we're the clay. Shall what's formed say to the creator, why have you made me as such? Or why have you done this? I don't think so. God has his purposes. It's enough for us, like Psalm 37, to, to trust in the Lord and to wait. Thankfully, we have Job, so we can see what God was up to. Job didn't. And we have this wonderful psalm that says, get the right view. Get the right vision. Get the right optical on here. He's right. Verse 17, then, we, as we read, Asaph's solution to this huge problem was found in seeing God in his eternal purposes. I entered the sanctuary of God, the dwelling place of God, if you will. Then, then, he says, then finally, the whole thing pivots. I understood their final destiny. He got the big picture, the eternal purpose of God. Well, this um, entering the sanctuary of God, number one, involves uh, seeing God, seeing life as God sees it. It's to consider the final end of the wicked. Those outside of Christ will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire and hell forever and ever and ever without end. There's no such thing as purgatory, none whatsoever. Your death seals your destiny forever. Verse, uh, verse 17 is the pivot of the whole psalm. John Calvin tells us of this, that Asaph entered into God's schoolhouse the very sanctuary of God, and seeing life 
from God's throne. I think he's, he's right. Well, B, he uh, clearly realizes now that the godless are not so prosperous and not so well off, and it's not so much the good life, and they're not so secure. That's what a lot of folks, I want to get security. I want to build my own castle, my own wealth. I want to, uh, you know, this kind of thing, a fortune. If I have enough, then I'm okay. And Asaph began to realize, whoa, wait a minute. From God's eternal perspective, they are not secure whatsoever. In fact, look at the words he used in verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You see, when in verse 2, he saw their prosperity envied, and he was slipping, slipping, and almost gone. But now he realizes, wait a minute, it's not me that's slipping. They are the ones that are ready to go down. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. It's like when you go to sleep and you dream, and life often seems like that, doesn't it? It seems like when you dream and you wake up, and it's, it's, it's like, whoa. And uh, the idea that, uh, that uh, we're in this midst of, we're going to wake up here, and instantly God will deal in a fashion of justice with those uh, who, uh, who are wicked. You will despise them, he says. Verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He, uh, he confesses that they are not secure. In short order, they will be destroyed. They are not blessed. It is really not he, but they that are on slippery ground. They are not secure. He had envied them, but they are not in an enviable position. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Imagine that. A million Donald Trumps. We were in Chicago and saw the incredible high-rise that Donald Trump is building right there on the Chicago River. It's enormous. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of condominiums. What a location. They ripped down the old uh, Suns, uh, Suntime uh, newspaper buildings to, uh, to buy that property. You say, like, wow, Trump is a, boy, he's a real financier, real estate magnet, and all the rest. How about, uh, how about 100,000 uh, 100, Donald Trump? They own the whole world. What should it profit a man if he, he owns the whole world or gains the whole world? But what? Loses his own soul. What kind of a trade-off is that? We need to remember that and think about that. What is true wealth and what isn't? What is the illusion of wealth and what isn't? Would you call uh, prosperity the words from the Lord, depart from me into everlasting fire and destruction? Would you call that prosperity? Asaph finally came to his senses and he said, that's not prosperity. Life is going, going, and almost gone. It's, it goes so fast, doesn't it? It's a vapor. The weeks go by so fast, we fly through the calendar. I wrote the order of service for today. I put down February 4th, and I put it away, filed it, and I, said to, I thought later, oh, wait a minute, what month is this? And we've had some things to occupy our thinking, but it's March the 4th. I go like, where did February go? Isn't that something? Faith and I married 31 years in May this year. I go like, 
I'm waiting for someone to correct me and say, no, get it right, see, it's only 15 years. It feels like that. It does. It goes and it goes and it goes. That's what it is. That's life. Well, what would you call that prosperity? Depart from me into everlasting fire? The wicked? I don't think so. They're not in an enviable position whatsoever. Well, verses 21-22, now Asaph is coming to a spiritual senses, finding a spiritual balance. Now he's grieving. He's contrite over the fact that he was entertaining envy about the godless uh, around him. Look what he says in 21 and 2. Uh, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Was I stupid or what? I was a moron. Lord, what was I thinking? And we can be swept away with the strong currents of our day and get ourselves caught up into thinking like pagans. He who finishes with the most toys wins. Wins a what? What did he leave? He left it all behind. And forever is a long time. Wow, what's the matter with me? Hit me in the head if I do that again. I can hear him say that to his friend. If you see me going down that trail, beat me silly. Don't let me do that. What's the matter? I got a far afield from the path. And then... He, he moves to his conclusion, verses 23 to 26. Having recovered his spiritual balance, he catalogs the true wealth belongs to the redeemed. Now these are some of the most beautiful verses in the whole Old Testament. And I would recommend by way of a homework assignment, you write these down and you memorize these. These are wonderful words that will sustain you they have me through valleys and darks, dark uh, times uh, as well as the good times. Look at uh, the inventory that he catalogs. It would be like a businessman at year end saying, we've got to do an inventory here. We have to find out uh, what kind of merchandise we still have from nuts and bolts to software to the whole thing. does an inventory to find out what, what do we really have here? And that's what he does. He does a, an inventory, and then he catalogs it for us. Look what he says in, in the, first, uh, the first thing, verse 23. Yet I'm always with you. Here's Asaph saying, yet, speaking to the Lord, I'm always with you. Now, you would expect it the other way around, where he said, Lord, you're always with me. But he said, I'm always with you. And it reminds us that we are never alone, ever, ever. He comes into a new awareness of God's presence, that he's never alone. Listen, you're, if you're in Christ, you are never alone. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. <clears throat> Hebrews 13, 5, I'm always with you. We have the very presence of God with us wherever we are. Never alone. Remember that ship they found out in the Atlantic with no one on it? No captain, no crew. The thing was just, just floating wherever the currents and winds would blow it. That's what modern man says that life is. That's it. That's not it. You are owned and you are never alone. He is always with you and will be all the way to the end. I am always with you. The presence of God. Think of some of your loved ones and family. Don't you love to be, have them together? 
These are sweet days with Greg and Sarah and Taylor now at home. We didn't expect that. These are wonderful days for just to have our family near. David's there. The only one we're missing is Jonathan. But the presence of having them there, God is saying, I'm always with you. Don't forget that. And then he goes on second, number two, to say God not only wins, but he lends us the strength we need to live in this world. He says, you hold me by my right hand. Now, sorry to you that are lefties. And Faith and I have two out of three that were lefties. I remember we asked the pediatrician early on, Dr. Sosfus up in Goshen, Indiana, with Sarah. You know, I said, Doc, she, she's favoring that left hand. And he said, yeah, I see that. I said, well, what can we do? And he said, what do you mean, what can you do? I said, you know, not that we're going to tie it behind. And I said, well, you know, Doc, it's a right-handed world. And I noticed at that moment he was writing on his board. <laughs> and he just looked up at me, and the conversation <laughs> ended at that, that point. But... The, uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew way of thinking, the right arm was the strong arm. And so God holds us with the right hand. I, my children were little. We always grabbed their hands before crossing the street. and Grabbed their hands, you know, with any kind of safety around. You hold daddy's hand, right? To not only presence, protection, but in this case, it's strength. It's strength. Not only am I always with you, he says, but you hold me by my right hand. You strengthen me so that I can live. I don't feel like living sometimes. Sometimes it's overwhelming to me. What God promises is Asaph catalogs the wealth that is ours as the redeemed, that the very strength of God strengthened us. But third, look at what he says. Uh, uh, you guide me with your counsel. Well, that's God guides his own with his wonderful word. And that's the scriptures. God uh, not only is with us, he holds us with the right hand, but we open the word of God and we walk through life. And God speaks to me and I to him through prayer. And he, he guides and he directs. He's given us pastors and teachers and Sunday school teachers and youth workers and to teach us the word of God. The Spirit of God, the great teacher, teaches us, comforts our heart. I love the Word of God. Where would we be without? Imagine if we didn't have a Bible. It was just some oral tradition, and, and we're trying to give some sort of rendition of it here that's been told down through the centuries, like was done early on. I'm so grateful that we have the Scriptures, the, the very Word, the very breath of God. You know, there was a, there was a blasphemous... Uh, program on TV. Maybe you saw the advertisement for it. I think it was on last night on the History Channel. There's some <clears throat> uh, nonsense. Uh, it's pseudoscience that they discovered a new ossuary that contained the bones of Jesus. J get ready. You Theologically, you want to vomit all over when you read something like that. But this is even worse, okay? That is hocus-pocus nonsense. And this is even worse. One of the pastors in our area writing about that in the paper quotes Rudolf Boltmann, the German theologian, and he said this, <clears throat> that even if they were to discover the bones 
and the crip and the body of Jesus, it wouldn't make any difference to the Christian faith. Well, I started yelling. At the, I'm not given to that usually. But I thought to myself, two things. Number one, this man has never read the Apostle Paul. He somehow got ripped off in his Bible. It doesn't have 1 Corinthians 15 in it. We're of all men most miserable if they find any ounce of anybody in any tomb or ossuary anywhere. And number two, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be at home, and I'd never come back here, ever. And I'd pitch that book in the trash, and I'd never open it again. Never give another dime to any ministry. Zero. He's completely wrong. It's not this, this idea of Jesus and let's just hug and all that kind of nonsense. You know, I'm for hugging. I love that we're a hugging family. <laughs> that, I'm sorry, that's, no. Without the resurrection of Christ, it's all lost. And it's the Word of God that teaches us of the empty tomb. He guides me with his counsel. Asaph said, man, I'm wealthy. I'm wealthy. You ever get bad counsel? Hmm? Yeah. Medically? How about directions? You know, I, when I was uh, young as a boy, people would stop. We'd be playing ball on the street. Someone would ask, and uh, I didn't know where they lived. But my brother was always glad to share his mind. Yeah, go down here and over there, and they'd drive away. I said, I didn't know you. Know, I don't know them, but I wanted to tell them anyway. You know, <laughs> you, know you ever get bad counsel like that? It's this, the, God guides us with his counsel, and it's without air. Isn't that great? And finally, look at this. Look at this, and afterward, after life is what he means. Afterward, you'll take me into glory. Afterward. This is the clearest statement in the Old Testament of the hope of the redeemed insofar as the resurrection. There are some that will teach that the resurrection was not taught in the Old Testament. That's not true. You know the 23rd Psalm Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, David said. Well, this is even clearer. And afterward, you will take me into glory. That's absent from the body. That's present with the Lord. That's our, our sweet hope. Isn't that beautiful? And so Asaph uh, realizes at our death we'll have uh, God's reception in heaven. Glory, you'll take me into glory. Did you know that uh, these verses were the ones that Charles Wesley, he and his brother, founded the, what we know today as the Methodist Church, and Charles wrote many, many hymns that uh, we have today. And he called his wife to his bed as he lay near death's doorway. He was thinking about this very passage, these words in verses 23 to 26. And imagine the state of mind to be able to dictate to his wife in his dying breath another hymn. And these are the words that he gave to his wife based on this text. Here it is, and I quote, In age and feeble extreme, what shall a sinful worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart, oh, could I catch a smile from thee, and drop into eternity. Wow, the wealth that is ours, the wealth that Asaph finally saw when he saw life in the big view from God's throne, from his perspective, 
it uh, caused him to regain his uh, spiritual walk in balance. And he says, in essence, finally here, God is all we have, but he's all we really need. We are wealthy indeed. It's all how you add up wealth. You know, when they, they want you to add up wealth, if you're going to do a will or an estate or you're going to do a, a, some of these things, or they're, you know, you're thinking about life insurance and you're thinking about this or that or the year and you're like, sit down and fill out all your assets. Sit down and say, let's see, I've got a jalopy and I think, I think it's worth this. And I got a dog and she's worth this. And I got a stamp collection. And I got the furniture and I got, uh, you know, this. I got checking account. I got some stock maybe. I got a retirement. I, you know, the whole bit. You sit down and try and add it up. And then again, so that's what he's doing here. He adds up true wealth. True wealth, not the monopoly money wealth. That's the wealth that our world deals in. And when the game's over, you notice, even those $500 bills, you collect them, you take them out of the sweaty palms that they were in, they were all excited with Broad uh, uh, Parkway and, and, and Broadway, right? Park Place? And broad... Thank you. Thank you, Heather. Yeah. Marvin Gardens, I always got that, and you couldn't charge any rent. It wasn't much. And go to jail, you know, these kind of things, you know, and, and they skip $200, go around. That's the money. That's the assets and wealth of our day. And when the game's over, life's it. They collect it, put it away in the box, fold it up, put it away, done. God says, my wealth is a wealth that abides forever, forever and ever. And Asaph saw that, and no wonder he ends and he says in verse 28, But as for me, it's good to be near God. I want to live real close to that throne. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Well, lessons for our life will be done. Number one, lesson for our life. You and I will lose our spiritual balance when we take our eyes off the Lord Jesus. We will will be no different than Peter on the water. We take our eyes off the Lord in the world, and down we go. Down we go. Be careful about that. Beware about that. Keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. Your spiritual balance is at issue. Number two, if, uh, if you are a Christian, you are truly wealthy. Truly wealthy. The wealth that will abide forever. Don't be fooled by the fool's gold the transitory wealth of this day that's all going to be burned up, all of it, all of it. The earth will undergo a cataclysmic burning. Don't be tricked. Don't be fooled. Don't give your life to that stuff. We need it. We need it to live in this world. There's no question about it. But love God first and use those things that will glorify Him. Number three, our problem is often envy. And envy is sin, isn't it? We want what others have. We want their place in life, their possession, their position. Really, it's sin because it criticizes God. It says, Lord, I'm not content. I'm not happy with what you've doled out to me. I deserve more. And all of us have committed the sin of envy. We have from one time or another. We need to ask the Lord to reveal that to us, and confess that, agree with him, and turn from it. 
and forsake it. Number four, view human life as a full-length film, as I mentioned earlier. Your life is only a few frames. God has it all worked out. And so if it should appear that, that you lose everything, like a Job, know for sure that uh, God is all wise and all loving, and he has all the details worked out. So keep your eyes fixed on him, even if the storm rages and the lights go out. And it's a chronic situation. Sometimes we're good in the acute. I can take pain for a couple of days, but tell me it's going to be in my life all the days of my life, and I groan under that thought, don't you? We want to know, are you better? When are you getting better? We all want it because the thought of going on and on and on and on and on, all the, we go, like, I, I, I don't think mentally I can handle that. Know that God has it all worked out, even in that, to his glory. Number five. Asaph wanted cash, remember? He wanted the wealth, the prosperity of the wicked. God is after something far more valuable, something that will, will span the ages of your life. God is after character. Asaph wanted cash. God wanted. God is building and developing character in your heart and in your life if you know him. And the question is, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Number six and last. As always, God offers true wealth and salvation alone. And maybe you're here and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior from your sin. You need to know that you're under the condemnation of God, awaiting judgment. And the law, don't tell me you're trying to keep the law. The law is given to condemn you. That's it. And if you fail at one place, you're a lawbreaker. There's only one escape. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved you. He died to make the only payment for sin. You need to receive him as your Lord and Savior. He is a personal Savior. Receive him. Oh, I implore you and urge you, even today, in a simple prayer, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Wicked I am, you know alone. Thank you for dying for me. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Don't let the day pass without kneeling by a bed or a chair in the privacy of your home. And trust the Lord as your Savior from sin, and he will save you. If I can help in that or any of us were here to do that, there's nothing greater for us to do than just that. Well, it's a upside-down world, isn't it? Psalm 73 certainly is a wise psalm that helps us keep our spiritual balance. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's our world. There's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ alone We'll put it all back together again. Let's stand and be dismissed with a word of prayer.